Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 381, Weekend at Williams. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to episode 5 on our series on William of Normandy. And it's huge. Over an hour crammed with details from the life of this future conqueror when he was just a teenage duke. Now, you may have heard of William, but you probably haven't heard of the nonstop rebellions, betrayals, and bad decisions that made this man who he was when he reached English shores. It's all the melodrama of high school, but with swords and cavalry. And if that sounds like your idea of a good time, you can get the entire series on William, as well as over a hundred other members' episodes, by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a croissant per month. And thank you very much to Molly, Andrew, and Steve for signing up already. After the traitorous murder of King Gruffith, Harold returned to England victorious. And as for Wales? Well, their king had been assassinated, and their lands were carved up between rival nobles who were subservient to England. And as for the Welsh themselves, well, here's how John of Salisbury described the effects of Harold Godwinson's brutal campaign. Quote, Thereby, the strength of the Britons was so impaired by the Duke that almost the entire nation seemed to die out, and their women were married to Englishmen by the indulgence of the king, end quote. Now, John was writing about 100 years after these events, which tells us that this campaign was still being discussed a century later, and the effects of it were also likely still being felt. Harold's devastation of Wales was so complete that the region never fully unified as a single independent nation again. Much of the territory to the east, which Gruffith had acquired, was once again reclaimed by the English by the time the Doomsday Book was written. And as for the politics of Wales, by breaking it up, and by placing it in the hands of subservient nobles who had long-standing feuds with each other, England, through Harold, was ensuring that the Welsh people would not be able to mount another campaign against England anytime soon. And the Welshmen who remained were instead locked into a series of bloody internal feuds between their own local lords. In short, this campaign against Wales and the following policies that Harold and the English crown enacted transformed this land from a serious contender on the island to a region that was dangerously exposed to further conquests. And for Harold, this did have a problem that came with it. You see, Wales also had a history of helping out the family of Godwin, most notably through Harold's elder brother, Swain. And by hobbling Wales, well, let's just say that Harold better hope he won't find himself in a situation where he's in need of allies. Because the truth is, by taking such an active role in these catastrophic acts, Harold was foreclosing the possibility that he and his family would have a fallback position, similar to what Elfgar or Swain had utilized to such great effect only just recently. The English political efforts with regard to Wales were focused like a laser upon breaking and isolating the region. Even in areas where you can see Harold and the Crown building relationships with the people across the borders, it still had this tone. For example, there was how Gwyneth was dealt with. Now, Gwyneth and Mercia had a long history together, sometimes as enemies and sometimes as allies, 
And most recently, they were definitely allies. And that Gwyneth Mercian alliance presented a serious threat to the English crown. But all that had changed. The men who'd been central to that alliance, Elfgar and Gruffith, were now dead. And as alliances tended to be personal rather than national, meaning nobles tended to be allied and then dragged their lands with them rather than their lands being allied regardless of who was leading, well, that had all changed. And now Mercia was being held by Elfgar's young son, Edwin. And as for Gwyneth, well, Harold and Edwin had appointed Gruffith's half-brothers, Blethyn and Rewallen, as the co-rulers of Gruffith's home territory of Gwyneth. And any prior relationship between these new lords would have been cursory at best. And it's possible that Harold and the Crown suspected that all King Gruffith's half-brothers needed was a reason to switch loyalties. A reason, for example, like an appointment to a throne. So that placement could have been an attempt to drive a wedge there. And looking at Harold's actions in the years following the campaign, he also appears to have been trying to draw Mercia closer to his sphere of influence. And if Mercia was short on allies, for example, if Gwyneth was no longer as close to them, well, that task would no doubt be easier. So it's possible that the elevation of Blethyn and Rewallen was an attempt to pull Gwyneth away from Edwin of Mercia and his younger brother Morcar and bring it closer to the House of Godwin. But as for how well Harold was doing with those efforts, well, he was no Swain, or Elfgar for that matter. And a look at the records reveals that the joint rulers, Blethyn and Rewallen of Gwyneth, maintained their close relationship with Mercia through Elfgar of Mercia's young sons, the newly appointed Earl Edwin and his younger brother, Morcar. And despite Harold's best efforts, all he managed to do with Mercia is move it towards political neutrality when it came to the House of Godwin. The records suggest that the sons of Elfgar neither opposed nor supported Harold's rise in the English halls of power. And if anything, it looks like their passivity might have been hostile. They may not have been able to do anything to directly oppose Harold's ambitions, but they weren't about to help him either. Now, Harold, who was known for being charismatic and popular, was probably at this point discovering that a winning smile and an easy demeanor wouldn't be enough to win allies in this international game of diplomacy. And he wasn't the only Godwinson running into problems. Because the fact is that Harold wasn't the only one to campaign in Wales. Earl Tostig Godwinson had been right there by his side. And shortly after that war, Earl Tostig returned to his territory of Northumbria and began raising taxes on his subjects. Now, historians have suggested that the reason why he did this was because the cost of the Welsh campaign had been significant. And so Tostig was attempting to replenish his coffers. And while the records don't give us a definitive answer, that really is the most logical explanation. After all, even the English records speak of how long and difficult that war had been. And wars are always expensive. And almost always, the ones who have to pay for that war aren't the ones who are gaining lands and titles. Instead, that cost is carried by the people who never really had any say in going to war in the first place, and certainly didn't benefit from it. So, while leaders might be popular during a war, they tend to become a lot less popular when they have to raise taxes to pay for it. And as for Tostig, well, he probably didn't have too much sympathy for his subjects. Because the fact was, he never really wanted to lead Northumbria in the first place. He wanted to be the Earl of East Anglia. And as for these Northumbrians, 
he didn't seem to like them too much. Their blood feuds and particularly raw form of political culture didn't sit well with their new taciturn earl, who was known for following a rigid set of rules and morality. And for their part, the Northumbrians didn't like Tostig either. This was a taciturn man who didn't share their culture and who never really took to glad-handing or diplomacy. And on top of that, Tostig had been busy pouring fuel on the fire by trying to directly counter some of those northern ways that he took issue with. And one thing that likely riled up a lot of people was when he began importing laws from the south. Laws that did things like forbid blood feuds. It's a decision that made a lot of sense as a policy. Frankly, Northumbria could have used fewer feuds. And so you can see why that would have appealed to Tostig. But you can also see why it would be deeply unpopular with the local dynasties. And without the diplomatic skill to match the dramatic turn in the law, well, Tostig wasn't exactly the bell of the ball. And as for your everyday Northumbrian, well, these were West Saxon morals and laws that he was imposing upon Northumbria. So even if you weren't a noble who was engaging in a blood feud, you can imagine how well that would be going over. So Earl Tostig was already on thin ice when he went to war against the Welsh. And then he returned, and he demanded that his thanes pay a hefty tax, which would be financed in part by the churls who served those thanes, which in turn would be financed in part by the peasants and bonded people who were out there working in the fields or working trades. So all of Northumbria at this point was feeling the pinch, and people began to wonder if they might be better off with someone else in charge. And perhaps, maybe it was time to go back to their roots and do what Northumbria was best at, coups and assassinations. Tostig, whether he knew it or not, was in deep trouble. And that's just the north. Beyond that, England as a whole continued to be dominated by the rolling succession crisis. The quest to find an heir to the throne had hit a serious obstacle with the untimely death of the king's nephew, Edward the Exile, who had been summoned to England, but then died suddenly upon reaching English shores. And that meant they needed to find a new heir. And that was bad, because they still had Harold Hedrada of Norway out there insisting that he had a claim to England through that tontine that Harthacanute had struck. And you also had Duke William of Normandy, who felt he deserved at least something in exchange for sheltering King Edward while he'd been forced into exile. And come to think of it, maybe he deserved everything. So things in the English court were getting desperate. Now, Edward the Exile's eldest living child, Margaret, was old enough for the throne, and she was also from the right family. But she was also, you know, a girl. Even worse, the middle child who was probably about 14, was also a girl. And so, in the face of this crisis, most of the English court probably had their attention trained on Edward the Exile's youngest child, who was maybe about 10. He'd also spent almost all of his very few years outside of England. But he was a boy. And I guess a boy playing with micro-machines was seen as a better king by the Witan than a woman in her 20s. Oh yeah, and there was also the f***ing Witan too, wasn't there? After all, it was the Witan who appointed the king. And who was one of the most powerful members of the Witan? Harold Godwinson. 
So England was staring down the barrel of an absolute catastrophe that had the potential to upend the lives of everyone in the kingdom from the very top to the very bottom. But it was only the people at the top who had the power to act and institute the obvious changes needed that would secure the best chances for peace and prosperity. So naturally, while they weren't fighting wars near, and also fighting wars abroad, because the king had also decided to get involved in Emperor Henry III's wars, well, in their free time, the nobles were also mustering all their power and resources to one great social project. Dumping money into the church. King Edward was busy building Westminster Abbey. Yes, that Westminster Abbey. Queen Edith was rebuilding Wilton Abbey. Otta of Deerhurst was constructing religious buildings before he retired from politics to literally live his life as a monk. Tostig and his wife served as benefactors to Durham. Gunhild, the youngest daughter of Godwin, entered religious life as a nun. And as for Harold, well, he had been going almost as hard as King Edward. And his efforts were focused on Waltham. And Waltham had quite a history. The story goes that it was once the hunting lodge of Canute's standard bearer, Tovey. And when Tovey found a black cross at his estate in Somerset, he had moved it to Waltham and founded a village and restored a church to serve them. Now that was years ago, and through a Byzantine series of transfers, Waltham was now in Harold's hands. And at some point prior to 1056, Harold had been struck ill. According to the legend, he was actually paralyzed, and he sought help from the Holy Roman Emperor, likely Henry III. And members will recall that this is the same emperor who was fighting the Lotharingian Rebellion that had swept up damn near everyone, including King Edward, Duke William, Count Baldwin, and the Godwins. Well, on his free time, when he wasn't fighting that rebellion, the emperor took an interest in Harold's paralysis, and he sent one of his top learned men, Adelard. And Adelard told Harold that he needed to go to the Holy Cross at Waltham to be cured, which Harold did. And I have to assume that someone must have carried him or something, unless walking was all part of the cure for paralysis. But anyway, Harold was apparently cured. And according to the legend, he credited it to the intervention of the emperor and Adelard. Soon afterwards, Harold went to work drastically rebuilding and redesigning the church, its buildings, and its grounds based on Lotharingian design, which was Adelard's homeland. And then he placed Adelard in a position of authority within that church order. Now, Harold lavished wealth and effort on this project, and the record of revenues allotted for the institution are incredibly generous. The records of endowments and gifts made to this place and the description of the buildings, furnishing, and goods within speak of shocking extravagance. Just gold all over the place. Silver vases, marble altar, pearl and gold encrusted chasubles. Frigging lavish. And the church was most likely dedicated in 1060, just as it was probably becoming all too obvious that Edward was never going to have a child of his own. And the Godwin family involvement continued afterwards. In fact, even Harold's first wife, Edith, was apparently involved and in contact with the house even as late as 1066. So much like Westminster Abbey under King Edward, a lot of labor and wealth was being marshaled for this project. Which means that as the political and economic world of England was on the brink of absolute destruction, the leadership of England 
were dumping boatloads of cash into the church. Now, if this was all part of a strategy to make friends with God in hopes that he'd do a deus ex machina and fix this issue for them, well, they probably should have taken note of the fact that everyone else had access to that same hotline and that rival claimants could issue bribes just as easily as they could. And they were. Duke William of Normandy and Matilda, for example, were founding religious houses in Normandy. And they'd even, quote, sacrificed their daughter to a nunnery in order to make friends with Big J. And if this really was a game of competing bribes, that was a raise that King Edward couldn't match. And, you know, I'm sure that Chasuble was awesome. And I won't lie, I do love a visit to Westminster Abbey every now and then. But I don't know. Maybe they could have put that money towards something like an improved navy to protect against invasion. Seems like that might have helped a bit more than the medieval equivalent of the rich guy space race. And that's all happening right as this crisis was hitting a fever pitch. In fact, in 1064, Harold Hedrada relinquished his claims on Denmark in exchange for Swain's recognition of Harold as the king of Norway. Which meant that Swain Estrasen and Harold Hedrada were now at peace. Which in turn meant that Harold Hadrada had a free hand if he wanted to do something like, I don't know, go get that English crown he felt he was owed? Bad news. And that wasn't even the biggest crisis of 1064. The main event of 1064 was a political development so big and so influential that, assuming it actually occurred, it forms the basis of a later event that literally changed our language. And it's why we have words in our language now, like pork, beef, and surrender. Look it up. I'm not even kidding. 1064 is where the rubber really meets the road. Maybe. Possibly. Probably? But we can't say for sure. Because in 1064, here's what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says. Yep. Our contemporary English accounts go completely silent, but our Norman accounts start to go absolutely bananas. But these accounts are not only confusing, they're contradictory and heavily biased. So there really is only one way to teach you what comes next. I'm going to tell you the various accounts and try and guide you through them. And I'll try and help you weigh them in terms of potential veracity as best as I can. And that, I promise you, is way more than you'll get from the scribes of the f***ing Chronicle. Thanks, guys. All right, let's start with the Carmen de Hestinge Prolio. This is a Norman account attributed to Bishop Guy of Amiens, and it was recorded soon after the events occurred. Now, Bishop Guy was also the uncle of Count Guy of Ponthieu, who will appear in later accounts regarding this same situation. Though curiously... Bishop Guy doesn't include any involvement in this situation by his nephew, Count Guy, which right away should raise an eyebrow about these accounts. But what Carmen tells us is that Harold had made an oath to William of Normandy, telling him that he would accept William as King Edward's heir. And the English Earl had later confirmed that promise by delivering a sword and a ring to the Duke. Now, we're not given details nor dates. We're just left to make guesses as to where things fit into the timeline and who was present. And that's it. 
The next record is a big one, and it really forms the main basis for the story of Harold's alleged promise, and it's contained in the Norman account of William of Poitiers. Now, William of Poitiers was a contemporary chronicler of the exploits of Duke William. In fact, he was probably in his 40s when all of this was said to have gone down, and he'd end up writing his own gesta a few years afterwards. So, like Carmen, Poitiers' gesta was written close in time to the events. And Orderic Vitalis tells us that William of Poitiers was Duke William's chaplain, which would imply that they were very close and would indicate that he was relying on at least second-hand accounts. And perhaps he was a first-hand witness. However, that would rely on Orderic Vitalis being correct on this. And William of Poitiers doesn't appear in any of Duke William's charters, which you would expect if he really was that close to Duke William. So that's weird. And since we don't have other writers confirming things, we're left wondering if Orderic got it wrong there. Complicating matters is the fact that Poitiers' gesta isn't a simple chronology, but is instead a narrative story that was inspired by Poitiers' admiration for his duke. And that perspective that he holds is reflected in the persistent, boastful tone of the writing. William of Poitiers was not an impartial observer. He was Duke William's hype man. He was writing a panegyric, and as such, it carries with it all the pitfalls of one, and we should be wary. In fact, we know that his audience was none other than William of Normandy himself, and Poitiers delivered his manuscript to him sometime in the 1070s. As such, respected scholars tend to warn readers that William of Poitiers is representing a Norman point of view and is also often inaccurate, especially with regard to anything involving England, and is largely colored by prejudice. And when it comes to this period of Duke William's life, Poitiers appears to have been most focused upon justifying his duke's claim to the throne of England. So that's the context for this record. However, it is a record, and we don't have many, so we have to read it. And Poitiers writes that Edward had sent Archbishop Robert of Jumiege to visit William and name him as King Edward's successor in 1050 or 1051. Now, as we spoke about in earlier episodes, no contemporary English sources say anything about this promise, and it's something that only the Norman panegyrics mention, with Poitiers being one of the biggest. As such, it's highly unlikely to have occurred. But, having laid out the likely fabricated promise... Poitiers moves on to the real heart of the story. He claims that as King Edward of England lay dying, so either in 1064 or 1065, the king sent his chief man, Harold Godwinson, to travel to Normandy and tell Duke William that he would be the next king of England. Harold made the dodgy crossing of the channel and landed at Ponthieu. Once on land, Count Guy of Ponthieu who you will remember was Bishop Guy's nephew, summoned his men and immediately captured and imprisoned Harold. Duke William, upon hearing this, rode to the northern part of his duchy at Eu and convinced the count to release Harold. And then William delivered Harold and his men to his own city of Rouen, where Poitiers assures us that the Earl and his companions were given proper hospitality. And then... Harold and his men swore fealty to Duke William. Yeah, fealty. We have an English earl 
swearing fealty to a Norman duke. And then Poitiers tells us that William, the Duke of Normandy, confirmed Harold's lands and rights in England while the King of England still lived. Right. Poitiers adds that Harold then, of his own volition, promised to fortify Dover with Norman knights along with any other place in England that Duke William required, which is a totally normal promise, and then said that he would act as Duke William's deputy and make sure that William would be accepted as King of England. Poitiers also tells us that Duke William intended to marry his daughter, Adelaide, to Harold. Now keep in mind that William and Harold were about the same age, so Adelaide was literally young enough to be Harold's daughter. Yikes. But Poitiers assures us that after this flurry of oaths and submission, Duke William kitted out Harold and his men with arms and armor and took them on campaign against Conan, the Duke of Brittany, who Duke William was at war with because Conan had renounced his vassalage and was getting involved in the politics of Maine. Members will recall back to members episode 112 and how integral Maine was to many of William's internal French feuds. And this was another one. Now, Poitiers tells us that William and Harold relieved Dole, which had been besieged, but they failed to capture Conan, and rather than giving chase, they returned to Rouen, where they stayed for a while before Harold returned to England, weighed down with tons of gifts, two hostages, and the release of Harold's nephew, Hakon Swainson. You'll recall that he was one of two of the Godwinsons who'd been captured and imprisoned by Duke William. So, that's what Poitiers says happened. And if you ask me, he lays it on a bit thick. This entire story has the same feel as that guy at the end of the bar who tells you that he was recruited into spec ops in high school, but turned them down because he was training to be a stunt guy for Tom Cruise. The next record that we have that suggests a meeting between Harold and William actually isn't a document. It's an embroidery that was likely created at St. Augustine's in Canterbury and was almost certainly commissioned by Duke William of Normandy's half-brother, a man named Odo, the Bishop of Bayeux. And despite it being an embroidery, and despite the fact that it was likely made in England, it's commonly referred to as the Bayeux Tapestry. And so even though it isn't a tapestry, that's what I'm going to be calling it. And as it was probably designed in the 1070s, that means that it's a close-in-time record of these events which makes it very important. But at the same time, I don't envy the scholars who do the difficult work of interpreting the artwork contained on it. It must be nerve-wracking to try and decipher the meaning of individual threads. Now, this tapestry, like any record, isn't impartial. It, like our documents, has a focus and a perspective. In particular, it was intended to glorify Norman achievements and to laud the actions played by two figures. Bishop Odo of Bayeux, and our old friend, Count Eustace of Boulogne. Do you remember Count Eustace? He was the guy who went on a murderous rampage in Dover when he couldn't get a bed and breakfast, and then complained to King Edward that the locals were rudely refusing to be slaughtered. So, that guy and William's half-brother are the main characters for this tapestry. So that's the perspective of the record. And the images the tapestry provides do give us a wealth of detail about Harold's alleged trip to Normandy. Though, because they're images, they're also subject to interpretation. 
and I'll do my best to describe what these images are. So first, we have a scene where King Edward is meeting with Harold in his palace, and he's issuing instructions. Next, we see Harold riding to his estate at Bosham, accompanied by his thanes. And along the way, they take part in some hunting, because, you know, nobles. At Bosham, we see them pray and feast before making an uneventful channel crossing. And then they land at Ponthieu, which is weird. If they were headed for Normandy, then Cotentine would be the most likely destination. And interestingly, there's no indication in the artwork that they were blown off course. So I don't know why they ended up there. Next, we see Harold and his men in Ponthieu being approached by Count Guy. Harold drew his knife, but he was overpowered and captured and taken to Beaurain. Now, Beaurain is in the far north of Count Guy's territory, and it's honestly a weird place for Guy to take his prisoners. Until you consider the fact that just across the border from there are the lands of Count Eustace of Boulogne, the old enemy of the House of Godwin. So what the tapestry might be telling us here is that the plan may have been to ransom Harold to his enemy. We're then shown the Count seated on a throne, holding a sword in his right hand upright. A powerful posture. Meanwhile, Harold is below, with his sword in his left hand pointed down. A submissive posture. This appears to have been some sort of negotiation for release. There is then a depiction of Duke William's men arriving, and Harold is taken to the border town of Eu. He makes the journey accompanied by hawk and hounds, which usually indicates that the nobles went hunting. So that could be telling us that Harold traveled in comfort with William's men. We then see Duke William and Earl Harold at Rouen, where they had a meeting together. But the real star of the story is what was also happening in the margins. And it begins with Harold's journey to Eu. You see, the tapestry is laid out in such a way that the main story happens in the center of the cloth. And then underneath and above the main story is a sort of occasional commentary. Sometimes it's just decorations, but other times we have figures and scenes that seem to add to the main story that's happening just above them. And in Harold's journey to Eu, right underneath him is a depiction of a naked man about to embrace a naked woman. The man seems pretty thrilled. The woman doesn't. Now, we're not given context for the image. And like many things that happen in the margins of illuminated manuscripts, these images might be doodles, but it's more likely that they had some degree of significance, but it wasn't being spelled out. And that does tend to happen quite a bit. And if you want an example of how this works, think about it like this. Imagine that you're a thousand years in the future and you find someone's hard drive. On this hard drive, you find Game of Thrones memes, but you don't find a copy of Game of Thrones. So you're there staring at an image of Sean Bean holding a sword. And there's text over it that says winter is coming. Well, that's a little confusing, considering what you know about the climate from that period. And then next, you see Sean Bean holding a giant baguette. And the text there says carbs are coming. It's a bit like that. We know that these images probably mean something. And maybe we can glean some of the meaning. But we're also pretty sure we're missing bits. Oh, and speaking of bits, the bio-tapestry features these two naked people right underneath Harold, which is perhaps a reference to the English Earl getting a bit thirsty on the trip. 
Next, in the lower margins at that meeting at Rouen, we see a naked man wielding a tool. Not that tool. And he's working on some sort of rectangular object, which may have been a coffin. Scholars think this image could be literal subtext, saying that Harold was digging his own grave at this meeting. Then finally, we have a scene that appears in the main part of the tapestry after this meeting. And it shows a woman in modest garments, with only her face and hand being exposed, standing at a palace or perhaps some sort of gate. She was probably a nun of some sort. Beside her is a Clark, and he has one hand on his hip, and the other hand is reaching out to either touch her face or unveil her. Directly beneath this scene, in the margin, is a naked man facing the viewer. He's posed in a vulgar squat, with a large exposed penis dangling between his legs. And his hands are gesturing in a way that mirrors the Clark who's depicted with the woman. And then written above this whole scene, translated from Latin, says, quote, Where one Clark and Elf Gifu, end quote. Now, Elf Gifu was a popular name at this time, so we don't know for certain who this woman was. However, Harold did have a sister with a name that sounds quite similar. It tends to be written down as Edgifa or Elgifa or Edgifu. And this would hardly be the first time that someone's name got misspelled in a document. And that's led some to suspect that maybe this woman was Harold's sister, especially given its placement in the story. But that's just a guess, and it's also a leap based on an assumed misspelling. Furthermore, we don't know exactly what's being conveyed here. The safest interpretation was that there was some sort of scandal that was seen as important enough to be included both in the margins and also in the main part of the tapestry, and that it was somehow connected to the story about Harold in Normandy. And historians have been wrestling with this naked squatting man and his meaning for years, with some even suggesting that this might represent plans for a marriage alliance between Harold and William. But so far, it's an unsolved mystery. However, after this scandalous interlude, we rejoin Harold and William, who now appear as brothers-in-arms on campaign against Duke Conan of Brittany. And when they're near Mont-Saint-Michel, Harold is depicted dragging two clean-shaven soldiers out of danger. And as the Normans were clean-shaven, this likely depicts Harold saving William's men. We then see William, Harold, and their army chase Conan from place to place, and eventually he surrenders a fortress. Afterwards, we see William and Harold standing together, and the embroidery reads, William gave arms to Harold, which, given the scene that's depicted, was likely some sort of knighting ceremony. We see Harold holding a banner of command, and William putting a helmet on Harold with his left hand, while he adjusts William's armor with his right hand. The implication here is clear. Harold had become William's vassal. Next, the two of them ride back to Bayeux, the residence of William's half-brother, Odo. There, we see William wielding a sword and sitting on a throne with two companions holding spears. And before him is a bare-headed Harold, stretching out both his arms to touch two altars or reliquaries. Above it reads, where Harold took an oath to Duke William. Though notably, it doesn't say what the oath actually was. And it's not like there wasn't room for that. 
they very easily could have embroidered to give him the crown or something like that. But no, they don't say anything like that. And a look at the margins for any additional subtext or explanation doesn't help either. All the margins are bland and nondescript. Which is weird, you know? We have this exceptionally clear view of some clerk's Harry Schlong, but then on the issue of this oath where Harold Godwinson might promise William the Conqueror the entirety of England, suddenly the embroidery is leaving something for the imagination? Real cool, guys. But after this scene of some kind of oath, Harold is shown sailing back to England, where he meets with King Edward, and... Well, the king does not look pleased. Harold is making submissive gestures while the king sits above him, pointing a finger at Harold. And he's not alone. Behind Harold is an axeman who seems to be threatening Harold with his weapon and is also pointing at him. And then there's a second man armed with an axe who stands behind Edward, but with his blade averted, and he's pointing to the king. Now, we're not given an explanation for this but it seems that Harold was getting one hell of a talking to from the boss. Now, obviously, that's not the end of the bio-tapestry, but that is the end of the Oath Saga part of it. Next up, Orderic Vitalis gets involved, and he says that the Oath did take place, but it was at Rouen, which means that now the tapestry, Orderic Vitalis, and William of Poitiers are all giving us different locations for this alleged Oath. Then later, in the 12th century, another Norman scribe, Gerns, gets involved. And he says that they were all wrong, and that the oath actually took place at a hunting lodge near Bayeux. And what that's telling us is that Normandy had now been involved in a hundred years of playing telephone with this story. And it all starts with French sources that were anything but unbiased. And then the quest for truth gets even worse. Because in the 12th century, English writers also join in and start adding their own twists. It begins with a 12th century Canterbury monk named Edmer. And according to Edmer, King Edward really didn't want Harold to go to Normandy. But Earl Harold defied him because he wanted to secure the release of some family members that Duke William had been holding hostage. Meaning Harold's brother, Wolfnoth, and his nephew, Hakon. Edmer says that going despite the warning the king gave him, was a reckless move. And William took full advantage of it once Harold appeared in his lands. We're told that William informed Harold of how Edward, back when he was a boy living in the Norman court, had promised that William would be his heir. You know, I guess on the off chance that the exiled Atheling would ever become king. And now that Edward was king, William wanted Harold, the chief man of England, to make it happen. To that end, he wanted Harold to ensure that Dover Castle was placed under Norman control, including its waters. And he also wanted Harold to provide his sister, presumably at Gifu, for marriage to one of William's companions once it was convenient. And Harold, for his part, was to marry William's daughter. And the Duke stressed that in return for this fealty, he would release Harold's nephew, Hakon, right now. And then once William was seated on the throne of England he would release Harold's brother, Wolfnoth. Not only that, but once he was king, he would grant Harold any request he had, provided it was reasonable. Now, Harold was under no illusions. He knew that he was in an incredible amount of danger. 
but he also knew that he was at William's mercy. He was trapped, and the only option left to him was to agree to William's demands. So he took the oath, and he promised to give William what he wanted. And then William plonked some relics down in the vicinity, so the oath would be hard to get out of. With that done, Harold and his nephew returned to England, where he met with King Edward, who was basically all, I f***ing told you so, and now we're all over the barrel. Great job, So that was Edmund's take on the event. A short while later, William of Malmesbury tries his hand at this tale. And in his version, Harold isn't traveling to Normandy on purpose. Instead, he went out fishing and got blown off course, where he ended up in the clutches of Count Guy of Pontieu. Harold then bribes a man to tell Duke William of his capture and tells the man to lie to the Duke and insists that Harold was actually there because he'd been sent to Normandy by King Edward. Once the Duke secured Harold's freedom, he was so grateful that he promised that he would give William Dover Castle, and also England itself. So that's Malmesbury. And actually, it wasn't just Normandy and England who were revising this story. Even Scandinavia got in on the fun, with King Harold's saga mentioning it, which is attributed to Snorri Sturluson. In that version, Harold was actually sailing for Wales, but he got blown off course and ended up in Normandy? Must have been a hell of a gale. Once in Normandy, he developed a thing for the Duke's daughter, so he decided to stick around until the following spring in hopes that he'd marry her. Next in time is a record from one of the monks of Battle Abbey, who adds that one of the relics that Harold swore on was called the Bullseye and he swore on it three times. The monk was likely referring to the phylactery of St. Pancras, which is featured in the so-called Hyde Chronicle. And with that last edition, the revisions are pretty much done. So that's the story of Harold's alleged oath to William of Normandy. So did it happen? I don't know for certain. Nobody does. And the reason why I took you through all the various accounts and all their changes is that I wanted you to see how there are a bunch of competing and contradictory versions of this story, and how it all began with a panegyric that was openly making a case that William should be the king of England. And if you want to know what I think, I think that Harold probably did make that crossing, but probably not because he wanted to go fishing or visit Wales. Instead, I suspect that this probably did have something to do with Duke William's hostages. But here's the thing. William wasn't just holding Harold's brother and nephew as hostages. He was also holding Walter of Mentz, King Edward's nephew. And as the last surviving child of Edward's sister, God Gifu, Walter was one of the strongest dynastic claimants to the English throne. So if we look back at the tapestry and the scenes with Edward instructing Harold, I think it's possible that the king was sending Harold to Normandy to retrieve his own nephew in that first scene. And Harold, who had expanded his power and influence after defeating Gruffith, very well may have thought he could handle William, and didn't anticipate that things would go quite so badly for him once he was in Normandy. Furthermore, as I mentioned in the previous episode, at right about this point, Walter and his wife Beota died in suspicious circumstances while imprisoned by Duke William. 
and if they were deliberately killed by the Normans. You can see how Harold's presence and the request for the return of hostages very well may have been the final nail in their coffin. And that failure to retrieve them could explain the threatening scene that the tapestry shows when Harold returns to England without Walter. It could also explain why the Chronicle just pretends that this year didn't happen. Because what else were they going to do? 1064, on this year did the Earl Harold get extorted by William of Normandy? And lo, did the king declare that someone should make a rule about duress because this is ridiculous? Also, some birds died. There's no way they put that in there. And my gut feeling is that Harold was flying by the seat of his pants. And he went about this task with his characteristic supreme self-confidence. And what he didn't anticipate is that Normandy was very different from England. And that William played by a very different set of rules. And then, as Edmer pointed out, once he realized how much trouble he was in, it was too late. It was also too late for Walter and Beota, though, to be honest, they were probably dead the moment William got his hands on them. They just didn't know it yet. And now that he was back in England, Harold probably realized exactly how dangerous William was and how much trouble they were all in. I'm the bad guy. But ultimately, that's just my guess. No one knows for certain what happened in 1064, but most scholars will tell you that there's a change in Harold at this point. His actions take on a frenetic quality. He moves quickly and in a way that suggests that he wasn't entirely certain of his own allies, that he may have feared that they could turn on him if he didn't deliver. And so we see Harold taking ever increasingly large risks, quite possibly because he knew that the only way to retain his position was to demonstrate his power in big ways. Harold needed wins. Like King Gruffith towards the end of his reign, Harold has the look of a man who has the tiger by the tail. And now he's doing whatever it takes to hold on. Thanks for listening. <laughs>